Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Christopher Moore, who has a new novel, Razzmatazz, which is a sequel to Noir. Christopher Moore has 18 novels. Among them are Lamb, A Dirty Job, Secondhand Souls. There's different series. This is called the Noir Chronicles. There's also the Death Merchant Chronicles, Pocket the Fool. There are three vampires in San Francisco books, Bite Me, You Suck, and Bloodsucking Fiends. I want to talk about your career as a whole. Your books, I guess they're kind of comic fantasies, supernatural comedies, uh, they're dark, but never really dark. And you've been compared to Douglas Adams and Vonnegut, though Neil Gaiman, C.M. Kornbluth, Damon Knight, Fred Paul, Fritz Leiber are also people who have written in similar veins. Uh, but before we talk about your career, let's talk a little about Razzmatazz and Noir. So Noir came out before the pandemic, and while many of your books take place in and around San Francisco, this one takes place post-war. What brought you to that era? And also, there's a connection here with Guys and Dolls or Damon Runyon. So can you talk about that as well? Sure. Yeah, I've lived in San Francisco for the last 15 years now. I'm just fascinated by what happened to the city post-war and, and how the, there was this churn of the demographics and things like that. And and all these different uh, cultures and, and subcultures c coming in contact with one another, sometimes for the first time and sometimes in a different context. So that was why I picked that time period. The Damon Runyon thing is Runyon wrote from the 20s through the 40s, and he did this dialect. The first, his stories were very funny. He's known for the musical adapted from his work called Guys and Dolls, but his stories were very, very popular, you know, you know magazines like Look and stuff like that. You're always looking for people. I'm always looking for writers that are funny and that can be funny. And his humor was particularly uh, derived from the dialect that his character spoke, which was this sort of tough guys trying to sound high-minded and always speaking in the in the first person and in present tense. And uh, and, and it was just the, the very turn of a phrase was, was funny. And it was just something that I wanted to play with a little bit as well as using the dialect from classic noir movies, which is more prevalent than the actual books, which were written by pretty literate fellows like James M. Cain. Noir was a, a send-up sort of of the whole genre and using Damon Runyon as a way to put words in the character's mouth that were funny just coming out. As you said just before we went on the air, you're, you haven't necessarily kept up with the fantasy and science fiction genre. But had you been reading a lot of old noir people like Chandler or Hammett? I read those probably contemporaneously when I was reading, you know, classic science fiction and horror for the first time. 
So I had to refresh that. I read that, you know, probably in my late teens, early 20s, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and James M. Kane and Jim Thompson and that whole bunch, which spans, you know, 35, 40 years. And uh, so I had to go back and, and visited some of the classics and, and picked up on authors like Chester Himes. He was, to my knowledge, the only uh, African-American who wrote in that genre in the in the 40s and 50s. And I was going to have uh, African-American characters in this book. And David Goodis, who was a, a sort of a classic noir storyteller and wrote Dark Passage, which was made into a film with uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and set in that same year in, in 1947, right here in the city. So it was just sort of natural to go in that direction as well. The two books, Razzmatazz and Noir, uh, Razzmatazz is a continuation of Noir. Uh, so when we're talking, we're actually talking also about Razzmatazz, the latest book. But there's an afterword to Razzmatazz. While it is a fantasy <laughs> with a science fiction element, it's got both. And of course, satire, it does deal with some very serious issues from around that time, and some of them actually impact today. There's characters in the book, along with the uh, black character, the African-American character, there are several Chinese characters, both in 1947 San Francisco, as well as flashbacks to 1906 San Francisco. Uh, what kind of extra research did you do for each of the books to kind of get a feel of what Chinatown was like, and why did you decide to focus in on Chinatown to begin with? Well, the book was going to be set in North Beach, where I've lived for the whole time I've been in San Francisco. Chinatown is adjacent to North Beach. The the uh, the border basically is Broadway, which is you know walk across the street and it feels like you should have a passport and you're in a different country. So if I was going to write about the neighborhood, and I was, I wanted to write about Chinatown as well as North Beach and Russian Hill and, and some of the other neighborhoods. The time period sort of dictated that, that what was going on in Chinatown at the time, there were quite a few nightclubs that had Chinese entertainers performing sort of Anglo acts like Andrew sisters. And, and you'd have a, a Chinese entertainer who was uh, uh, doing Frank Sinatra and that sort of things that were contemporary at the time. It was sort of entertainment for the greater Anglo community to come into Chinatown in the evening and go to these nightclubs that were very famous. There are a couple of books about those clubs and a documentary film, which I wasn't able to find about those clubs at that time. And I thought that was just an interesting take. Lisa C. has written a couple of uh, novels set in that universe. One is called China Girls. It is a part of the city, so I wanted to make it a part of the, uh, uh, the story. And also there were a lot of the Chinese entertainers and, and nightclub workers that would go work in these places were sort of shunned by the greater Chinese community because they were, it, they were sort of seen to be sellouts in their own way because they were pretending to be Anglo and, and sort of throwing aside the, the Chinese way. So that's one of the reasons that drew me into it was to have this character, Eddie Shu, uh, who they call Eddie Mushu's because of the kind of uh, Oxfords that he wears, you know, bridging the gap between these, these sort of down to luck working tough guys that populate the story. And he's just one of them who happens to be Chinese and happens to work in a Chinese nightclub. 
There's also discussion of the tongues and their relationship to the triads, and that's also in in the books as well. Uh, what kind of research did you do on that element? Well, that element all had to be academic, obviously. The entire book Rasmataz, everything was academic. There was no in-person research to do because pandemic. It was pandemic. Yeah, exactly. So it was basically just finding books and looking stuff out and up and, and finding things that fit into the story. And so I sort of did a, an origin story. In noir, I don't really explore the Chinese community too much, except for just touching on the, the characters contemporaneously to the story. But in this book, in Rasmataz, we get the backstory of how this old gentleman who runs an opium den in noir, and that's all we know him as, is this sort of underworld character who's been in Chinatown forever. We get to find out his origin story and how he came over to the United States to be a laborer, to find his fortune in the early 1900s and, and ended up working as a hatchet man for the Tongs. And, and in that way, in telling his story, Uncle Ho's story, you get to see what the culture and, and the underworld of, of Chinatown was like at the turn of the century. Had you been looking in that direction when you were writing noir? Was it in the back of your mind that you might go in that direction? I think what happens is when you research a book, you just open up so many doors, and some of them you just don't have the time or space to go through. And so I think that that was a story that I felt unexplored in noir. And, and so in Rasmataz, that sort of is the framework of the story, along with the, the whole uh, drag king's element that I'm sure we'll talk about. Right, we will. But one more question. Now, while you said, obviously, that you couldn't do that much live in-person research for for Rasmataz, on the other hand, since you live walking distance of all of these locations, you must have walked around and found really cool places you were able to use once you looked up what they were in 1947. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I work on all my books. I work off of maps a lot, off, off of historic maps. But yeah, I absolutely, you know, I walk down Grant Street once a week or Stockton Street, depending on traffic. And during the pandemic, even, I, I have to walk through Chinatown to get to my dentist or the people who make my glasses. So it was part of my appointment is to walk through Chinatown. It was interesting during the pandemic because early on, there was sort of an ostracism of, of the Chinese community. And it, it actually, it's ongoing. Chinatown, for the first time I'd ever seen, was sort of felt deserted. And we had some local politicians who said, look, don't ostracize the Chinese community. They, they still need your economic participation and so forth. So I tried to make an effort to duck into a couple of shops and buy stuff while I was going through Chinatown just to you know, help, help the, the community effort. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it's kind of my neighborhood. It's really not. I'm, I'm, you know, in any city, no matter the size, you live in your neighborhood and then the next neighborhood is a foreign place. But I did go in through Chinatown and the places I wasn't able to visit are the agricultural Chinatowns a couple of which still exist in the Sacramento Valley. And there's uh, quite a bit about that in Rasmataz. And I hadn't known about them. I thought they were interesting. And I wanted to cover those, but I wasn't able to go there because they were shut down for the pandemic. Is there anything left of the areas around, uh, I don't even know if the town existed, Locke in Sonoma? Locke is actually in, in the Sacramento Valley. It's outside of Vallejo, California. 
So it's it's away from Sonoma, and in the book, of course, they there's a connection there, but it's it's not geographical. And Locke is still there; it's sort of preserved as a as a living museum, but it, there was nobody there attending it during the, the pandemic. But originally, it was uh, it was one of the number of Chinese agricultural towns that sprung up after the railroad was finished. When you were talking about going to your dentist, I kept thinking. Yeah, my dentist is on uh, Post Street, and that's like three blocks from Chinatown. Right, right. Mine is uh, at 450 Sutter, which I think 80% of the dentists in the in the city are at 450 Sutter. And back in the time of Herb Cain, he talks about 450 Sutter going to see the dentist. You know, so um, it's been it's been a while. I don't know about you, but I walk, if it's an option, I walk almost everywhere I go in the city. And if it's, you know, out in the sunset, okay, I'll take a bus. If I'm parking, you know, it's Sutter Stockton, that's right around the corner from Chinatown. Oh, yeah. You know, it's literally right around the corner. You walk out of Chinatown and, and take a right. And, you know, if you walk down Grant and take a right on Sutter, you're there. Christopher Moore, let's switch gears and talk a little about the drag and gay element in Razmataz and Noir. You mentioned Finocchio's, and I moved here in the late 70s, but I don't even remember. It must have been around then, but I have no idea where it was. Finocchio's was in the uh, 400 block of Broadway. So right near where Enrico's was, I'm sure you knew where that, where Enrico's right. is. And, and the original Tommy's joint was right above where Enrico's was until recently. And you know, would later be the Purple Onion was in that same block. It's sort of been an entertainment mecca for a long time. And the, and the Finocchio's was two doors down from Mona's 440. And Mona's 440 was at 440 Broadway. And it was a drag king place that was driven out of business. But Finocchio's was in business from the 30s through the 90s. I'm sure when you came here in the 70s and when I started coming to the city in the 80s, you know, that was an area that was a little bit sketchy. I, I can remember going to Broadway on a Saturday night and there was a cop standing every 10 feet at the curb. And it was just a sea of sailors and, and, and Marines, uh, you know, in, in their white bell bottoms running up and down between the strip joints. That area of Broadway was, was pretty lively, I guess. What brought you to looking at the lesbian bars and their relationship to the drag bars and deciding to put that as a central element of noir. My whole approach to research is not how many details can I fill in and bore you with. My approach is what's cool. And so when I'm, I may read through all the details and all the tomes, but what sticks out to me is that's really interesting. I didn't know that. And I didn't know that there was a burgeoning community of drag kings. I didn't even know drag kings existed and that they were basically driven out of business in the late 40s, early 50s, you know, by sort of puritanical city fathers and police. So it was just, for me, a, a matter of fascination with, with this interesting subculture that that had grown up and, and thrived for a while in San Francisco and not really in a lot of other cities in the United States. And it was in that same physical uh, setting that the rest of the book takes place in. The research for noir came before the pandemic. Were you able to talk to anyone who was actually in those bars? Or is that too far away? I was not. I was not. I met one fellow who could remember who had come to the city in the 40s and was still around. 
And really the only thing that he could recall was going out to Playland, taking, you know, as a young guy in the Navy, he was a young Naval officer, taking girls out to Playland at the beach. And so there's a scene in Noir, uh, Playland at the beach, but it was just too long ago. There just weren't enough people that were still living that remembered those scenes. Since then, I mean, I've met people in the, in the lesbian community who are very aware of it and still practice sort of the drag king tradition. But for the general population, it was just almost unheard of. If you're walking up Broadway and you're passing the old Enrico's and that whole area, granted, a lot of the storefronts are different, but the buildings themselves is pretty much what it looked like then. Yes. And that's what's great. The San Francisco Public Library has a great online resource of photos where you can basically look at any street in the city at any time that there were photos of it. And I did that with all the places. And and yeah, that area, you know, basically the intersection of Broadway and Columbus, it looks almost exactly like it did back then. So, you know, maybe a little more neon back then than there is now, but that's just, I don't know, electricity savings. Is there a secret street that leaves Broadway just before the tunnel? Yes. And it's not that secret. I, I paint it out to be that much secret. Every time my wife and I are coming home from a ball game in a cab, she always directs the, the driver to take off onto Russian Hill up that street. And she always behaves as if no one in the city knows that street but her. But she learned it from a cab driver who knows to take it. But a lot of people don't know it's there. I don't know the name of it, but it's it just right before you go into the tunnel, as you're heading away from the water, there is a, a sort of a pull-off there that takes you up onto Russian Hill directly without having to to uh, negotiate the tunnel. Christopher Moore, when you were writing Moore, a lot of what we've now seen from extreme right-wing Republicans, the anti-gay, anti-trans movement, and certainly a lot of the anti-Asian bigotry that developed after the pandemic – that wasn't quite there. Did that give you a little more impetus to write Rasmataz, you think? I think a little bit. I think it, what it did is it made me want to humanize the Chinese characters a little bit more because in the first book, especially those that are more supporting cast like Uncle Ho, they're kind of stereotyped, you know, it's sort of a, a wizened, uh, uh, inscrutable old Chinese guy who works in an opium den and has, you know, has always got something on the sly. And I wanted to give him a history. So, you know, for me as a writer, it was less about making a statement because most of the people who read my stuff tend to agree with my sentiments toward politics, I guess is for lack of a better word. So yeah, there was some impetus to say, I need to, I need to show the struggles of these people the history, the things that they went through, the prejudice. And, and that goes, that maintains to the drag community, the gay and lesbian community, the, the African-American community. Um, you never want to preach in fiction, but you want to portray in such a way that the characters are sympathetic, that you understand what they're going through. Resmataz also has a disclaimer at the beginning explaining that we're talking about a different era. Did you have that in noir? Yeah, I did. Uh, it's generally something for younger readers who are accustomed to calling out what they are able to identify as politically incorrect. 
And it's just something that's consistent with the world that you're writing about. But if, if someone is, uh, well, I, I don't want to make it generational, but that's a habit that you've fallen into. It's a very easy template to check the list. I've seen lazy reviewers do it for 30 years, where rather than actually looking at what the artist is trying to say, they'll find this easy alarm button that they can push because they can recognize it. And so I started putting afterwards in my books as early as 1995, when I had a book where the bad guys were Japanese and they weren't bad because they were Japanese. They were bad guys because in that particular book, geographically, Japan was the highest technological society close to where I was writing about. Um, and so since then, I've always been aware of, of well, just, I think the kindest way to say it is lazy reviewers, people who, who go, aha, that triggered me rather than really looking at the purpose of the work. Christopher Moore, let's talk a little about your career. Now, you grew up in Ohio, were raised in Ohio, moved to California at age 19. Was that when you were, went to Cambria? I lived in Santa Barbara for about five years, and then I moved to Cambria in the early 80s. I was mid-20s at that point because I knew at that point I wanted to start writing to make a real push to write for a living. And I wasn't going to be able to do that and, and live in Santa Barbara because of just the cost of living expenses. So I was in Cambria for um, 20 years and sort of coming into my own in that period and learning my craft. And then I, I moved to Hawaii for three years. And then in 2006, I moved to San Francisco. Were you uh, always trying to be a writer as a kid? I think from about 11 or 12 on, I just found that I was good at it. I was an only child. I read a lot. My father valued books a lot. Um, he, he took his day, he was a cop and he took his day off to go to the library every week and come home with this big stack of novels. I inherited that, I guess, or picked it up from exposure. And so reading and, and, uh, and writing were always something that came very naturally to me. At what point did you kind of say to yourself, I'm really going to sit down and do it? Was it after college? Yeah, I think so. I uh, When I was about 15 or 16, I had a lot of reinforcement, a lot of positive reinforcement from school for things that I had written for school. But I was, you know, this, from this very working class Midwestern family who, who would say things like, well, you know, that's very, it's a really hard way to make a living. And I didn't want to be a journalist or do, you know, write ad copy. It wasn't just putting words on paper. I wanted to write stories. So I had strategies for ways to make a living while I was writing. And so I, I went to school for photography because that seemed like it was fun and creative, but there were different levels of success. You could, you know, still make a living at the portrait studio at Sears or shooting weddings. You didn't have to work for National Geographic or Cosmos. So that's what I came to California to go to school for and then fabulously failed and did a, a number of other things. And then in my mid twenties, I was uh, working as a health insurance broker in Santa Barbara, and it was very, it was miserable. I, I just didn't care for it, and I, and I thought, uh, but I was making okay money, and I thought, why am I doing this? And I thought, well, for the money. And then I said, what would you, to myself, what would you do if, you know, you had all the money you needed? And I thought, well, I would write. And so I removed the contingency of having all the money in the world and just started to go for what I wanted to do. By that point, judging by what you said before, you'd read all of this wide range of science fiction and fantasy. What attracted you to comic fantasy, to supernatural comedy? I think that I had always liked it. I didn't see it as a, as a 
way to go. There's just not that much of it. But I enjoyed uh, reading Robert Block's stories a lot when I was a kid. And uh, his stuff was sort of grimly funny. So I fancy myself a horror story writer. And I took my horror stories to a writer's conference in Santa Barbara in about 1983, I think. And I read them in workshops and everybody laughed at them um, with the way I turned a phrase. And I thought, well, I guess this is what I do. So it was very much a, oh, I'm I'm good at this thing that I didn't know existed. And, and that's what really led me toward it. And then I would subsequently read, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I had always been a Kurt Vonnegut and Tom Robbins fan. So, uh, and, and those were the, the guys that, the writers that kicked the door open for me were, were Robbins and Monaghan. And I know that because when I sold my first book, my editor told me at the editorial meeting, they said, well, I don't know what this is, but Monaghan and Robbins do okay with this kind of weird stuff. So we'll give it a shot. So I know that that was why I got published is that those guys had kicked the door open for me. Your first book was uh, Practical Demon Keeping. Mm-hmm. Which means that when you started out, was that one of the books that you were reading at this uh, at this conference? No, 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 no. I hadn't written that yet. I had always had a problem finishing novels. And so I didn't finish a novel for probably seven years after that, after the conference. I was reading short stories. And I knew at that point, if I was ever going to make a living, um, there was nobody writing short stories that was making a living at writing. No kidding. Even the guys that were very good, you know, like Raymond Carver and Arlen Ellison, those guys, they weren't making a living writing short stories. They were writing other things or teaching. And, and so I, I knew I would have to write novels and, and I had trouble getting the discipline to finish them. Demon Keeping came in about, I sold it in 1990. So I, would, I was writing it in the late 80s. So sometime after those conferences. At that point, you you knew you were a comic writer. I did. And I, I, I remember sitting with a friend of mine who was a writer and saying, well, my goal for this book is to do for horror what Douglas Adams did for science fiction. And he was sort of like, well, good luck with that. And obviously the way, you know, writing as an American rather than, than a Brit, you know, the phrasing was going to be different. But that was what I set out to do with practical demon keeping. But yeah, it was just something I was able to do uh, apparently effectively. And uh, and you just kind of have to go with what seems to be your strength, I guess. Well, by the time Bloodsucking Fiends came out, which was actually only a few years later, uh, it's a comic novel set in San Francisco featuring vampires. At that point, we'd already seen Interview with the Vampire which means that vampires were already making a comeback, but you wanted to do something a little bit different, I take it. I had done a, a short story on radio. The thing about living on the Central Coast in a little town of 5,000 people, which is where I was living in Cambria, is you could kind of decide you wanted to do something and somebody would let you do it. And I I was working on K, KOTR radio there where you were self-programmed and doing playing rock and roll with these little short stories I would write. And I had written a short story about a, a, a guy whose girl finds out his girlfriend is a vampire and he has read something in, in Science Digest about how scientists had finally been able to freeze a bat and revive it. So he freezes his girlfriend until he figures out what to do with her. And that was, it was very short. I think it probably took all of three minutes to read the whole thing. And then when I was going for my third book, I had to write a proposal for it. And I had to submit five ideas to the publisher. And one of the throwaway ideas was this story from radio. And I very much hoped that they would pick this this uh, story I wanted to write about a blues man in Clarksdale, uh, Mississippi. 
And uh, they didn't pick that. They picked the vampire book. And I remember saying to my editor on the phone, who was Michael Corda at the time, I said, well, I think Anne Rice has already done with this what I do, which is remaking the history of, of something. And, uh, and he said, are her books funny? And I said, well, no. And he goes, well, there you go. And that's how big time publishing decisions get made. So I went on to write a vampire book when that was actually not even my third choice of what I wanted to write. And that freed me up, though. I was like, it, it wasn't the vehicle for a lot of thematic exploration. It was going to be, you know, a couple of smart asses on stage and go. And my, uh, it was going to be for me, the idea of someone who gets turned into a vampire, but they don't get that sort of uh, obligatory Van Helsing lecture about what kills vampires and how they live and all that stuff that every vampire gets or the audience gets in every vampire book. So it was uh, Jody, who's a secretary at Transamerica, gets turned into a vampire and she gets no instruction book. She just wakes up under a dumpster in, in the financial district with you know, $50,000 in cash shoved inside of her blouse, and that's it. Did you always know that would be a trilogy? No, I absolutely didn't. And if you look at the publication dates, there's 12 years from the time that uh, that Bloodsucking Fiends comes out to the time that I write You Suck because my career needed to recover. Because as much as that was the choice of my editor, they didn't back the book, and they released it. With, they printed fewer than 10,000 copies, so it just didn't sell very well. And you can't do a sequel to a book that doesn't sell very well. So I had to go and do something else until my career recovered enough that I could do a sequel. At what point do you think you went from being that struggling midlist writer to someone who could actually make a living writing? I was very fortunate in that uh, Practical Demon Keeping, I wrote it and it took, it took a year of marketing and um, a friend of a friend found an agent for me. My first offer, I was waiting tables, was from Disney, and it was for high six, low seven figures, let's say. So it was enough money that I was able to stop working a real job and and write a second novel, and that one sold for enough to let me write a third, and so it goes. The first book is when I knew, is when they, they gave me a, a ton of money and I was able to stop working a day job. What happened to the film of Practical Demon Keeping them? It is, as they say, in development. Still? Yeah, it's 32 years. There have been very talented people attached to it and a bunch of scripts written, and uh, Disney still polices the intellectual property involved in it, but it, it hasn't moved forward. They had originally told me they bought it to go up against Batman 2, which was when Michael Keaton was still Batman. I, at that point, had gotten a good literary agent who said, Chris, you have to decide are you going to be a screenwriter? Are you going to be a novelist? I'd written one novel, but I hadn't written any screenplays, but I was terrified of driving in Los Angeles. So I said, well, I guess I'm a novelist. So I went on to write a second, third, fourth, 18 novels. That's how the decision was made. It was just very simply, I don't know how to do either one of these things, but I have done one of them once. I'll do that again. When I went to IMDb to look you up, I kind of expected a long list and the only thing that they mentioned is a dirty job is in development. Yeah, it probably was when that IMDb listing was, was last updated. Yeah, it, it's a dirty job has been in development two or three times with some really sort of, lack of a better word, big names, very famous people who have been attached to it. From that first lesson, I don't, I don't know how to roll that rock up a hill. It's too big. So I go and write another book. And then I'd say, call me if you guys do something real with this. 
all my stuff, I think, except maybe the Shakespeare books have been optioned or sold at some time or another. Christopher Moore, I was going to ask you about Pocket the Fool. What brought you to Shakespeare? Uh, language, same thing that brought me to writing noir and, and razzmatazz. Is, uh, I'd always uh, admired the poetry of Shakespeare, the language of it. You know, it turned out no matter what I wanted to say, Shakespeare had said it better 400 years ago, and it was in iambic pentameter. So I uh, I just had always admired the language, and I, and I thought... Uh, it was in the early 2000s, and politically, the world was just such a morass of, of duplicity. And I, I, I felt like the only person that was telling me what was going on, and it was giving me any truth, you know, were comedians like Jon Stewart. And so I was meeting with my editor in New York, and I said, I think I want to write a book about a fool, the all-licensed fool, the only person that can tell you the truth, um, can, tell, can speak truth to power. And I said, but I don't know if I want to do just any fool or if I want to do King Lear's fool. And she said, oh, you should do King Lear's fool. And and that was the last she had to worry about it. And then I had to go off and learn 36 plays and, and attempt to make something of them and, and put this character together. These ideas, when they come to you, it sounds as if what's not coming first is the supernatural or comic element. At what point does supernatural fantasy come in? And at one point, you, do you realize, hey, I'm a comic writer? As I often say to people, uh, I nobody's paying me for my elegant sentences. Um, it has to be funny. So no matter what I talk about to people, ideas are not inherently funny. Right. Interaction between characters and dialogue and, and action is funny. So early on, when you talk about an idea, you, you, know, you say something like, I want to tell King Lear from the point of view of the fool. But if you're just talking about it as an idea to someone who, who, say, like an editor, you're proposing it to, and you, you say, and it will be funny. Well, now, because it's me and I have a canon of work, um, I don't have to add that. But it's always going to be funny or I'm not going to do it. And in fact, I've abandoned ideas because I, I think, well, this is a great idea, but I don't think I could make it funny. And I think that's what I bring to the mix that's unique is, is that I can make things funny that not everybody can. So it's always there, Richard, even if it's not out front, because it's what I do. And the fantasy supernatural element? I just get bored with anything that's not there. And, my, and now that I have a readership, they, I find that they start getting suspicious if something weird doesn't happen early in a book. And so you do, you, know, you write for an audience. I, you know, if, when I teach workshops, I tell them, write for an audience. I don't care who it is, but it's got to be somebody that's not you. And my readers expect something to be funny. My, my book, Fluke, um, is about marine mammal researchers and weird stuff that happens in the world of whales and, and dolphins and so forth. And the first 150 pages or so is really a, a fairly accurate telling of what it's like to be a marine mammal researcher, a whale researcher on Maui. And people who were accustomed to my work and had just come off of lamb, which was is sort of my magnum opus, were, were thinking, well, what's wrong with it? This book, I, this book doesn't resonate with me because... You know, it's not till halfway through the book where you get the line, shoes off in the whale and and step away from the anus. And then um, at that point, people go, oh, yeah, OK, this is a Christopher Moore book. So I think at this point, it's expectation. And it's going to be there because that's what I, again, that's what I do. When you look at it deconstructively, of course, you're going to say, well, this is a comic fantasy and so forth. But 
I just know that stuff's going to be there or, I'm, or it's not a Christopher Moore book. So on something like noir, which, uh, well, I, I guess noir is a bad example because the plot itself involves science fiction. But when you get on to Razmataz, you've still got the science fiction element, but suddenly you're bringing in fantasy too. Right. Well, I, I think any of us who write fantasy, we tend to fall back on classic myth. And there's less, more lately, but in, in the past, there's been less Chinese myth and legend folded into American and English uh, fiction. And so because I was dealing with Chinese characters and who were immigrating from Chinese, they brought their culture and their legends with them. And so that becomes the basis for the, for the fantasy in Razmataz. And it, it basically, and it's not giving anything away because, it, you know, the book opens with the story of the triads and the tongs in China and how each of them were given a talisman, which was a dragon, and that some people said that they brought those to the United States and um, when they immigrated. And then the last line of, of the forward is, uh, or the prologue is, come on, a dragon in San Francisco? Uh, you know, and so we're off to the races at that point. And that's, again, where I learned from my readers, you can't hold back. They can't think that this is going to be a straight, like, noir detective story. They've got to know it's a Christopher Moore book, so let us know something early on that that's what this is. And, and that's what indicates it. Your books are also satires in their own way, but we've obviously hit an era where it's hard to satirize that, which is already over the top. Uh, I, I think I grabbed this from your Twitter account. The more I read about this spring's primaries and the predictions for the fall, the more I'm convinced that this is a nation of idiots. And I'll tend to agree with that. But the question again arises, how do you create satire when you have Rudy Giuliani holding a press conference in front of a landscaping company? People labeling my work will call it absurd fiction. And the absurd bar has been either lowered or raised to whether you can't get under it or you can't get over it at this point. And my approach to it, Richard, is to just avoid contemporary political commentary other than, you know, on Twitter, I can, I can riff on it on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. But in fiction, it doesn't last. It doesn't travel well. And so I really sort of relish going into 1947 or Venice or turn-of-the-century Paris and, and writing these books about then because trying to comment on this world that we live in, for one, just... Fiction for me, and I know for my readers, is an escape from this morass and this this ridiculousness. But but you can't call it ridiculous because it's so dangerous. And I, I just don't know how to address it because, as you say, you can't be over the top with something that's this over the top. Other writers I'm in contact with all the time said, no one would believe this if we had set this up as a plot. If you went in to pitch this stuff as a movie, people would go, get out of here. This is ridiculous. Nobody will believe this. Yeah, for there was a while during early in the Trump administration, even those words kind of make my head roll a little bit, where I was trying to figure out, were we in a Thomas Wolfe novel? Were we in a Thomas Pynchon novel? Or were we in a Philip K. Dick novel? Then I realized that this is weirder. Yeah, people were have since early 2015, when he announced, people said, oh, you need to write about this. You need to write about this. And I would answer, 
this is the last thing I want to write about. I don't want to spend another minute thinking about this moron. And, you know, I would always throw it off like, ask Chris Buckley. This is what he does. And it turns out Chris Buckley has done it. But, you know, there's someone who the burden of creation is on. Chris Buckley wrote a, an absurd novel about someone from uh, like Judge Judy becoming a Supreme Court justice. And it turns out that's not even that far out anymore. And I think Carl Hyacin has written a book where, where the Trump administration is a peripheral presence in, in, the, uh, in the novel. But it, it's not something I want to spend any more time thinking about. What's interesting with Chris Buckley is even 20 years ago, I mean, he's always been a conservative Republican, but he turned his back on George W. Bush because he thought he was a clown. That's what I was talking about when I said, when I was talking about speaking truth to power, my motivation for fool was the Bush administration. And it opens up in this sort of, it's just back in the days before Mad King George burned the world. And it, it, the book opens up initially uh, referring to a, a pre-apocalypse Bush administration, and it, but it does it so peripherally that if you don't know that, if you don't catch that, it doesn't ruin the story. You still think it's in a, a normal medieval England rather than what it is, which is an alternative rehistory. Well, I, I guess the only way to do it is to disguise it so that you can get away with it and still not scare the crap out of people. Yeah, and and not overburden them. I've heard dozens and dozens and dozens of times, hundreds of times, people referring to uh, you know, the Trump administration as, and the world that we're in now as, as the idiocracy, which is a Mike Judge movie that came out in the early O's and, and was completely ridiculous at the time and completely believable now. Yeah, I remember Idiocracy, and it was still silly, but now it's not. No, and and I don't I don't know how to cope with that. I, I I see it as my place to give people escape, to give them a few laughs when they, because during the the pandemic we had both global pandemic and political oppression. I guess I mean I I, I know I'm privileged to be able to say that compared to people who are actually politically oppressed, but it was frightening you know, the death of truth is frightening. I don't care how privileged you are. So I, I see it as my role to, to just sort of give relief of that. I sort of coincidentally was in San Antonio, Texas, the day of the Uvalde uh, massacre. In fact, I got the note from a Bay Area author. I had said, look, I have an event in Petaluma on Thursday. You don't have to come if the Warriors are playing because he's a big Warriors fan. And I said, By, but I have an event tonight at a Presbyterian church in San Antonio, and there's probably only a 50% chance of a, of a massacre happening. And so that was at noon. And about four in the afternoon, when I was waiting for my Uber to go to the event, he sent me a text and he said, dude, when did you write this? And I said, look at the timestamp on it, 1236. And he said, there's been a massacre 90 miles from you. My host, who was, was supposed to be in an in-conversation event, she had a panic attack and, and wrecked her car on the way to the event. I got a text from New York saying it won't be an in-conversation event. And so I walked into a church full of people to talk about a funny novel set in 1947 within minutes, when, you know, a couple hours after a massacre happened 90 miles away in a town from which some of these people had come. So I was telling this story the other night in Santa Cruz and, and a woman said, well, did you think about using your voice to address the problem? And 
I, I, I had no answer except it's like, what qualifies? What have you thought about using your voice to address the problem? Is there anyone who didn't think that a massacre of school children was a bad idea? And I, I, I don't want to diminish someone's concern. Simply, we don't have a template for how to react to this kind of thing. I mean, I write funny novels. And suddenly I'm, you know, if I'm asked to comment on it and what I did that night was walk in and say to people, I can't ignore what's happened, but I don't know how to get my head around it. And I certainly don't have any insight. We didn't even know the numbers at that point. So I went on and talked about a funny novel in 1947 and people sent me thank you notes saying, thank you for taking us out of the moment at the time. So that's my job, I guess. But it also, I, I suppose at some level is pointing, is, is a, punting responsibility because I just, I don't know how to pick up a rock that big. Um, Even the people who were supposed to report on Trump in the mainstream press, most of them still haven't gotten a handle on how to present it in a way that, that people will understand. I mean, how do you explain the supernatural quote unquote to people who don't believe in it? Yeah. And when that super supernatural quote unquote, is truth. If you don't value truth, then you have no basis for an argument. You have no basis for persuasion. You have no basis for, you know, it, it's, it's occurred to me, I, I think over a period of time, not like a bolt of lightning outside of Damascus, that it's the same act of faith, but with no basis, no character basis or, or moral or ethical basis or, or basis of promise, but it's the same people who just take things on faith and when presented with any sense of reality, deny it. And I can't understand it. Um, but I, you know, I keep referring to it as the death of truth, but I don't know how to address it. I don't know how to address people who don't believe facts. Christopher Moore, 10 years ago, in an interview, you said you would never been given a cover that you've liked. Has that changed? Well, I'll put it this way. Yes, I've, I've fought into some covers that I have liked. <laughs> the cover of A Dirty Job was really, really quite good. And it was from an idea from a designer that I didn't have anything to do with. I liked the cover of Sacre Bleu a lot. And that was a cover that I put together with a, an artist. I didn't obviously do the art. But that was a huge battle to get through because it has a cartoonish uh, figure of a nude woman on the front. And somehow they thought that a, the American reading public couldn't deal with that. So the short answer is yes. I've gotten a couple of covers that are really, really nice. And and uh, my editor has really made some of the uh, my books into nice objects. Sacre Bleu is beautiful. Rasmataz is a pretty book. It's really yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a pretty book with you know great end papers and so as as physical objects, I've been actually pretty lucky in the production of my books. You said that you won't write screenplays, and that's understandable, but you do have a penchant for dialogue. Have you written plays? I have not. I tried to adapt my novel Fool into a play and failed miserably. I since I've since uh, handed it off to my friend Austin Tishner, who's uh, sort of the leader of the reduced Shakespeare company and he's written an adaptation of it and is sort of shopping around for production facilities for it. But I don't close the door on screenplays. I, it simply was when that was an option of two options that I didn't know where they were going. I just chose the one that was more familiar. And finally, uh, Christopher Moore, 
Uh, Rasmataz has been out for a while. How close are you to your next book? I'm researching my next book. It's uh, set in Vienna in the, in the early 1900s. And uh, it's what they call a genius cluster. You know, you have Freud and Jung and Gustav Klimt and, and Egon Schiele and, and Gustav Mahler. And, and so I figure I'd mix it up with those guys for a little while. Uh, do you plan to head over there and check it out now I, that I, we're... Yes, absolutely. I'll be there in the fall. You've been listening to an interview with Christopher Moore, whose latest novel, series of novels, are Noir and then Razzmatazz. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.